Thank you, Matt, for leading us in worship. Good morning, everyone. I just would like to start by um, recognizing Mickey and Julie and Abe and Joyce and Ryan and Sarah, Phil and Heather, Joe and Joyce. Mary and I recognize your leadership in, in this assembly, and we thank you and the deacons for your careful consideration of our request for commendation. We're grateful for the trust that you place in us to formally link our names together with the name of Northern Hills and to allow me to stand in this pulpit this morning and bring a word from the Lord on the very first Sunday of 2024. The title for my message you see on the screen, the part about the heart of God was easy because Phil said you've been talking about that for a month or more now. It's a theme you've been exploring. But the idea of talking about the covenant um, came as I had thought about this commendation that was going to formally happen, this little ceremony that we did a few minutes ago with the laying on of hands. There are similarities between that and, and a marriage covenant. There's that linking of names that happens. There's that um, joining of reputations, so to speak. When Mary and I got married, Mary Muleisen became Mary Hawthorne. She took my name, and from that moment on, everything that she does, for good or ill, reflects on me, for she bears my name. And likewise, Northern Hills has supported us as missionaries in Bolivia for those 33 years that Phil mentioned. But from today on, there's a difference. Now our names are going to be linked together in the missionary prayer handbook. And so any ministry successes or, or failures that we have will reflect on you. It's a risk that you're taking. It requires trust based on good communication and understanding. And I want us to notice how that's also the context of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. It's in the setting of, of a, a covenant ceremony taking place under, under a canopy. This is a picture of this rich mountain where the mining happens in our city of Potosi in, in Bolivia. And occasionally there would be a cloud that would sort of come down and cover up the, the point there. And it would look like this canopy over the mountain. And it would remind me of the cloud coming down over Mount Sinai. And you know how to this day Jewish weddings happen under a canopy? It's going back to that idea of a covenant ceremony. Each side is making vows. And in the, the Exodus 20 context, uh, God begins by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And it's that third commandment that carries this idea that the people of Israel will from henceforth be, be known as the people of God, the people of the Lord. They are joining their name with him, and the way they represent him to the nations is going to reflect back on him. So God says, take care not to misuse this name that you'll be known as from now on. So let's talk about the heart of God in the covenant formula recognizing God's presence with us in prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, Almighty King, you've brought us in safety to this new day, this first Sunday of a new year. We, your people, have assembled in your presence to worship you, to give you thanks, to listen to you, to draw closer to your heart, and to be transformed by your love for us into more loving people to those around us. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. 
Amen. What do we mean when we talk about the covenant formula? Let's drop anchor in this scripture this morning and let me ask you to stand with me and let's read it together. It comes from Leviticus 26, verses 9 to 13. Read with me. I will look on you with favor and make you fruitful and increase your numbers, and I will keep my covenant with you. You will still be eating last year's harvest when you will have to move it out to make room for the new. I will put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves of the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. Thank you. Leviticus 26, 9 to 13. You may be seated. And that's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So here's the the same text, but I've just highlighted the the parts that come out. First of all, this is a covenant God is saying. And he says, I'll put my dwelling place among you. I will be your God and you will be my people. And who is saying it? I am the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, your God who brought you out of Egypt. So when we refer to the covenant formula, we can summarize it in these three lines of God speaking to us. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will dwell among you. And that came from Leviticus 26. It's expressed in those other passages there at the bottom. But you'll find it once you start looking for it all throughout Scripture. And I just want to show you a few examples. Jeremiah 31, when the prophet is talking about the new covenant, he says, I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Ezekiel 37, my dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. And it's all through the Psalms. Um, Sometimes just one line of it, sometimes two, and sometimes all three. Psalm 50, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you, for I am God, your God. Psalm 84, O Lord Almighty, my King, my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Psalm 100, know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. So when we, in the law and the prophets, it's usually God speaking. But often in the Psalms, it's the people coming from their perspective saying, you are our God. We are your people. We want to dwell in your presence. You are my God, I will give you thanks. You are my God, I will exalt you. So today I'm going to be referring to a number of scriptures without having you turn to each one. Taking advantage of the good teaching that you get here at Northern Hills and your familiarity with scripture so that we can refer back and link things together that are already familiar to you. But... It's time to practice because we're going to learn this covenant formula off really well by heart today. So I just want you to turn to your neighbor and say to your neighbor, Neighbor, God says, I will be your God. You will be my people. And I will dwell among you. So, Let's, we're going to look at each one of these parts this morning. Let's start with that very first line. He says, I will be your God. Okay. So the first thing to remember is that there were lots of deities in the Old Testament. And we have 
several dozen names of them, names like Baal and Chemosh and Moloch and Ashtoreth and Bel and Nebo and Dagon and Asherah, Nergal, Ashima, Tartak. In the New Testament, we hear of Zeus and, and Hermes and Artemis. So you've got to remember there's a context of lots of deities out there. And amidst all this smorgasbord of choice, God is saying, I will be your God. He's differentiating himself from all these other options. And you remember in our scripture how we notice that when he said, I'm making this covenant with you, and the covenant is, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, I'll dwell among you. And he said, I, the L-O-R-D, all caps, am saying this. So the disadvantage that we have in English is that when we hear Lord, I, the Lord, have spoken, we think title. The Lord sounds like a title to us, not a name necessarily. So that's why we always need to be able to translate in our heads when we see in our Bibles, all caps for Lord, that we recognize that that's code. Okay, that's a, in that space in the Hebrew text, there are four Hebrew letters. Yod, Het, Wow, Het, or Y-H-W-H. That is how the divine name was spelled. But once again, going back to that third commandment in Exodus 20, don't misuse the name. The Jewish people weren't exactly sure what that meant. And so to be on the safe side, they said to not misuse it, let's never use it. But we'll just write L-O-R-D and we'll say Lord, Adonai, in place of it. But the all caps will remind us that it's actually those four letters that are there. Now, YHWH, you remember too that Hebrew was written only in consonants. They didn't include the vowels. Okay, But that name comes from the Hebrew verb to be. And so in our Bibles, we see a translation, I am. Okay, Now, <clears throat> I just want to mention that in English, I am is a very irregular verb, right? I am, you are, she is, so forth. But it's, it's kind of limited in its meaning. Well, I should say maybe it's too broad in its meaning. It doesn't distinguish. Because I can say, I am Steve. And I can also say, I am in Cincinnati. Right? The one, the I am Steve, is a permanent thing. I'm always Steve till the day I die. But the I am Cincinnati is temporary. Tomorrow I expect to be back in, in Wheaton, in Illinois. Now, many languages do distinguish those two forms. How many of you have taken Spanish in high school? Ryan said yesterday he had a couple years. So you remember, Spanish has two words. Ser and estar. And the one is for permanent things. I would use ser to say I am Steve. But the one that I'm in Cincinnati, I would use estar because that's changing. So the thing to remember about the Hebrew verb to be, that this name is drawn from, it really is emphasizing that, that second meaning of I am here. I am present. And to capture this, I want you to go back in your mind to the story of the burning bush where God met Moses, okay? Because that's where he first revealed this personal name. Moses is going along with his sheep all by himself when he sees something off to the side and he turns to see what, what is this. This bush is burning, but it's not burning up. And he goes nearer to it, and God says, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. And then God says, I've heard the cry of my people who are suffering, and I'm sending you to bring them out. And Moses is asked, well, by what authority am I going to go? 
And God says, well, by my authority, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. And Moses says, all right, well, when I go back to the Israelites, the first thing they're going to say to me is, what's, what's his name? If I tell them the God your fathers has sent me to you and they ask, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, and then we have YHWH, YHWH, I am, I am in some of our translations. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. This YHWH named God has sent me to you. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. But I just want you to pause a moment. Remember we talked about all those other gods that were around back then. So the people of Israel at that time were living in Egypt. Egypt had its own gods. They had Ra, the sun god. They had Isis, the god of the Ni- goddess of the Nile. They had Thoth, the moon god. There were maybe 30 different gods that the Egyptians had. And those were the ones that the people of Israel were familiar with. And the thing about each one is that if you knew that god's name, or goddess's name, you knew what their territory was, and you knew what they specialized in. Like Isis, the goddess of the Nile, that was used for irrigation. So she was for harvest and crops and fertility and so forth. Right? And so when the people would say to Moses, okay, tell me the name of this God who's sending you, what they're asking is, what's this God's territory? What's this God's specialty? When do we need to take this God into account? Think if you were going on a, on, a, on a nighttime journey through the desert, would you need to make a sacrifice to Neptune, the god of the sea, before you left? No, that wasn't his area. He wouldn't have anything to do with that. Or if you were traveling by daytime, you wouldn't sacrifice to the, the moon god because it, you, you weren't in that sphere of influence. There's actually a very interesting story in your Bibles, 1 Kings 20, and you can look this up uh, later on. But it's the story of the king of Aram who invaded Israel with this big army and, and was defeated. And he went back to his wise men and he said, how did we lose? We outnumbered them 10 to 1. And his wise men thought about it and said, well, it must be because... The God of Israel is a God of the mountains, and that's where we fought them. So do this. Replace all your wrecked chariots and get new horses and put in new commanders and everything. And next year, we'll go and fight them again. But this time, we're going to fight them on the plains. And because their God is a God of the mountains, we'll for sure win on the plains. And then they do come out the next spring and... and they looked, the people, the army of Israel felt like grasshoppers in comparison to all these. But the prophet comes to the king of Israel and says, this is what the L-O-R-D, the capsule, the Y-H-W-H says, because the Arameans think that Yahweh is a god of the hills and not a god of the valleys, I'll deliver this vast army into your hands and you will know that I am present, okay? That there's no place where I'm not to be taken into account. There's no time, day or night, past or future, here or there, where I am not with you. And if you go back and look at the burning bush passage, notice how many times God says, I am with you. I am with you, Moses, because Moses keeps on balking, remember? But that's what his name means. I am in the sense of I am present. I am here. And once you remember that, that too you see all through scripture. Even in the New Testament. You'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's what the Yahweh, the Y-H-W-H means. And here I just uh, showed you, like I say, Y-H-W-H is consonants. We don't know what vowels went with it. But by putting in E-O-A there, that's where Jehovah comes from. 
or putting in AE in those places where Yahweh comes from or Yahweh. So we don't know exactly how I'm going to say Yahweh um, a lot, but it's important that you remember that it's not a generic title when we say Lord. It's a very personal name with a specific meaning. God isn't falling into the trap of giving a name that the people can then pigeonhole and say, okay, this is when we need to take this particular deity into account. He's giving them a name that means I am always with you. I'm present all the time, everywhere. Okay. We're also talking about the heart of God. How is God going to be present? And that's another interesting story that you recall in Exodus. There was that episode with the golden calf while Moses was up on the mountains, Exodus 32. Exodus 33, God says to Moses, okay, well, go on, but I'm not going to go with you. I'll send my angel with you. And Moses is like, no, 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 no. You said your name means you are present with me, so I'm not moving unless you promise to go. And he says, God, I want to see you with my own eyes. And God said, well, you can't see me and live, but here's what I'll do. I'll let you hear me pronounce my name in your presence. So Exodus 34, the, the, the beginning verses, Moses has to get new tablets of stone ready. And he goes up on the mountain and he goes into that cleft of the rock and God covers him over with his hand and God's presence passes by. And this is what it says, Exodus 34. Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones. He went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the YHWH had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hand. Then Yahweh came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the YHWH. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh. And then what? Seven, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So God, it's like in, in, in the New Testament where it says faith comes by hearing, Moses wanted his faith strengthened by seeing God. And God says, that, that's not going to work. But you can hear. And when you hear, this is what I want you to hear about the heart of God. You bear my name now. And he mentions these seven things. This compassionate God, this gracious God, this patient God, this loving God, this faithful God, this forgiving God, and this God of justice. Those are transferable qualities that God desired his people to embody as they presented him to the nations. So I want to teach you a song now. It's a song I actually learned in Zambia. I, I was with a team traveling around, visiting different churches, and we were outside the city of Andola. It was in a rural area. And as the people approached this church, they were singing. And they were singing this very simple song. I'll come back to that in a sec. The only words are, my desire is to know the Lord. But as we sing it, I want you to do that little exercise in your head, you know. Picture in your head when you say that word Lord, that sounds like an impersonal title. Remember that it's written in all caps, okay? That it's code for the four Hebrew letters, Y-H-W-H, and translate that to the divine personal name, Yahweh, which means I am present with you always. And remember how God is present. Remember the heart that he's present with. Compassion, grace, patience, love, faithfulness, forgiveness, and justice. So, I'll sing it once real easy, and then we'll sing it again all together. It goes like this. And if you can also, picture these Africans with these beautiful deep voices that they have singing as they're approaching this little thatched church without walls on a Sunday morning. <clears throat> they sang like this. 
My desire, my desire, my desire, my desire is to know the Lord. My desire, my desire, my desire, my desire is to know the Lord. My desire, my desire, my desire is to know the Lord. My desire, my desire, my desire is to know the Lord. Again. My desire, my desire, my desire, my desire is to know the Lord. My desire, my desire, my desire, my desire is to know the Lord. My desire, my desire, my desire is to know the Lord. My desire, my desire, my desire is to know the Lord. And remember, too, what knowing meant in Scripture. It didn't mean looking up a Wikipedia article about, about a subject. It meant this intimate knowledge, this, this closeness of a walk with a God whose heart is compassion and gracefulness and patience and love and faithfulness and forgiveness and justice. So... <clears throat> I I'm, I think what we just said was review to you, and I'm sorry, I don't want to insult anyone's intelligence, but I need to remind myself, because when I too quickly read over that, for instance, this psalm here, Psalm 8.1, a familiar song, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And we know a chorus to that. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And it can sound just like the repetition of a title. But look, the first one, Lord, is all caps. The second one is normal. And so, again, we translate it in our heads. The first one is the divine name. It's the YHWH. And the second one is literally the title, Master, Adonai. Okay, So it's actually saying, O Yahweh, our Master, how majestic is your name, that divine name. Okay, But we have to do that in our heads because our actual English language doesn't distinguish between those two. Okay, that's the first part. I will be your God. Who? The God whose name is spelled Y-H-W-H and whose heart is compassion, gracefulness, patience, love, faithfulness, forgiveness, and justice. And so much of the prophet's uh, you know, the text is given up. What does that mean to have this God as our God? Now, what does it mean to say we are his people? Let's, let's go on to that thing. Because just as there was a choice of lots of different gods out there, and it was Yahweh who was saying, I'm making this covenant with you, there was a choice of lots of different nations. Genesis 10, the table of nations. I think there's 70 listed there. The ones that we hear about, and there's that list, the Hittites, Amalekites, Jebusites, Amorites, Canaanites, Moabites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, and so forth. So why Israel? Why were they chosen? And Phil, I think you read from Deuteronomy 7 this morning, a little further on. In the beginning of Deuteronomy 7, Moses reminds them why they got chosen with these words. He says, You are a people holy to Yahweh your God. Yahweh your God has chosen you out of all the peoples of the earth to be his people. 
his treasured possession. Yahweh did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that Yahweh, your God, is God, the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. I hope you all heard me. God didn't choose you because you were the biggest and the best, but because he loved you. How does Paul put it in the New Testament to the Corinthians? Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. God chose the foolish things, the weak things, the lowly things, and the despised things of this world. So point to yourself and say, that means me. And now turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor, God chose you to be in his family. Not because you had the best CV. but because he loved you. God chose you. I just want to emphasize that if God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. God sends you flowers every spring and sunrise every morning. So that's the why. Why Israel got chosen. But what for? There was a purpose. When God announced that he was going to create a people that were going to be called by his name, he said to Abraham, I'll make you into this great nation and I'll bless you. And the reason is so that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And again, in that covenant ceremony in Exodus 19 and 20, God said, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So there was Israel's calling, a calling to bless the nations, all the families on the earth, to be a kingdom of priests interceding on behalf of the nations to God and communicating God's words to the families of the earth. I got a, a new book for Christmas that's helping me better understand how to occupy that space between God and the families on earth as the author describes two categories of people, illuminators and diminishers, and how we can be illuminators. Um, <clears throat> this, is the, this is the book by David Brooks, and I'm just going to read a paragraph where he was describing interviewing this older woman named Mrs. Dorsey. I think she, she was maybe in her 90s or so, and she'd been real involved in community work. And he was interviewing her in a, in a restaurant, and she was kind of coming across to him as a rather stern person. But while they were talking, this pastor named Jimmy came in, who knew her, and came over to her. He, he, this is the quote now. Jimmy leaned in, inches from her face, and cried out in a voice that filled the whole place, Mrs. Dorsey! Mrs. Dorsey! You're the best. You're the best. I love you. I love you. And David Brooks said, I've never seen a person's whole aspect transformed so suddenly. The old stern face she'd put on under my gaze vanished and a joyous, delighted nine-year-old girl appeared. By projecting a different quality of attention, Jimmy called forth a different version of her. Jimmy is an illuminator. Jimmy's gaze when he greets a person derives from a certain conception of what a person is. Jimmy's a pastor. When Jimmy sees a person, any person, he's seeing a creature who is made in the image of God. As he looks into each face, he's looking, at least a bit, into the face of God. When Jimmy sees a person, any person, he's also seeing a creature endowed with an immortal soul a soul of infinite value and dignity. So when Jimmy greets a person, 
He's also trying to live up to one of the great callings of his faith. He's trying to see that person the way Jesus would see that person. He's trying to see them with Jesus' eyes, eyes that lavish love on the meek and the lowly, the marginalized and those in pain and on every living person. When Jimmy sees a person, he comes in with the belief that this person is so important that Jesus was willing to die for their sake. As a result, Jimmy's going to greet people with respect and reverence, and that's how he's always greeted me. So that was, quote, page 31 in this book. And and that's how we want to be the people of God in the world, right? Illuminating other people with that knowledge and that recognition and respect instead of diminishing them. So why this particular? Well, because God loved them, not because of any merits that they had. And what was it for? It was to fulfill this role of being the particular means of God's universal purpose of blessing all the families on the earth and interceding on on their behalf. Now, I want to also just take a minute to remember where that name Israel came from, that little people that God chose. And there's this very interesting story in Genesis 32 that, again, I just want to call to your minds. We won't turn to it. So there was Abraham, there was Isaac, and there was Jacob. And in Genesis 32, Jacob had been 20 years away from Canaan. He'd been with his father-in-law, Laban. And now he was traveling back. And he was traveling back to meet his brother Esau. Esau was the reason that Jacob had had to flee 20 years ago because Jacob had cheated Esau out of his blessing, his father's blessing. And Jacob is worried. He's afraid of what he's going to receive from Esau when they meet again. In fact, he's heard the news that Esau is on the way with 400 armed men. And Jacob panics and he divides up all the group with him and he sends them ahead with these gifts of animals so that they'll meet one and then another and then another and and he's all alone on this one particular night. Everyone else has gone ahead. He's isolated. He's vulnerable. He can see that his past misdeeds are looking like they're going to catch up to him. He's expecting to be attacked. And all of a sudden, he is attacked. Out of the darkness, someone jumps on him. And they're wrestling. They're struggling there by this river. Now, in a city like Cincinnati, it's really hard for it to be really dark. There's always streetlights around, even reflected glows. But if you've been in a rural area, maybe you can remember what darkness is really like and what what would happen to your heart rate and breathing, your adrenaline levels, if someone jumped at you out of the trees on a dark night. And there they are struggling. I actually was a wrestler in high school. And I was thinking back to, you know, a wrestling match only lasts for six minutes. But I would be as tired after one wrestling match as after a 90-minute soccer game. Because you're just totally, every muscle is straining for every one of those six minutes. And this went on for hours. But it seems as the dawn is starting to appear in the sky, like maybe Jacob is going to win, just like he's come out on top every other encounter. When something happens that Frederick Buechner, in his sermon called The Magnificent Defeat, describes as follows. All the night through, they struggle in silence until just before morning. When it looks as though a miracle might happen, Jacob's winning. And then the stranger suddenly reverses everything in a moment, touching the hollow of Jacob's thigh. If it would have been a wrestling match, it would have been a foul. The ref would have blown his whistle and and the 
this whoever this opponent was would have had to forfeit because he dislocated his thigh and Jacob's lying there crippled and helpless. <clears throat> but Jacob is still holding on. Not not violently this time, but now in desperate need. This grip of a drowning man. And the stranger asked Jacob to disengage. And Jacob, tenacious as ever, says, No, I won't let you go unless you bless me, he says. And the stranger, before blessing him, asks him one question. You remember what that question was? What is so interesting about that question is, when was the last time Jacob was asked that same thing? 20 years before, when he sneaked into his father's, his blind father's room, wearing his brother's clothing, disguised with his brother's smell, with goat skin on his hands and everything. And his father said, who are you? And then he said, I'm Esau. And 20 years later, the heel grabber gets to do it over. What's that expression they have in golf? He gets a mulligan, right? What's your name? The stranger asks him. What's your identity? Who are you? And now, now he answers truthfully. He says, okay, I'm Jacob. I'm the heel grabber. I'm the deceiver. I'm the schemer. I'm the trickster. I'm the one who lied to his father, cheated his brother, manipulated my father-in-law, and then ran away from every disaster I created. I'm that Jacob. And then the stranger blesses him with these words. Interesting blessing. You shall no longer be called Jacob. You shall be called Israel. For you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. He gives him this new name, this name of this nation that that God chooses later on, a name that means wrestling with God. And to me that's a that's that's like a gift because we wrestle with God. I wrestle with God watching the the news uh of the war in Gaza and it's like where are you? Why do you let this go on? We wrestle with this invisibility of God. Why did the stranger disappear as as soon as the sun rose? Why did Jesus not let Mary Magdalene hang on to him? Why did he disappear as, as soon as the two and Emmaus recognized who he was? Why didn't he show up to Pilate and say, see, you should have listened to your wife? Why didn't he appear to the Sanhedrin and prove them all wrong? Why is he so fleeting, ephemeral? Um, Why doesn't he let us see him and only have faith come by hearing about him? Those are all questions that we wrestle with. And it's like God says, I can engage with those. That's okay. I'll call the people by my name the ones who wrestle with God. Because it means that you're not indifferent to God. You take him seriously by saying, where is your compassion? Where is your love? Why don't we see it worked out in some of the ways that we expect? So, those are things to remember about what it means to be the people of God. We're the people because He chose us, because He loved us. We're the people of God for a purpose, to intercede on His behalf with the nations. And or part of the people of Israel, not because we're ethnically Jewish anymore and descended from Abraham, but because of faith in Jesus Christ. But we still are part of the people that that are blessed for wrestling with God. And now, <clears throat> the third line, I will dwell among you. And again, for homework... I'll let you think about what did that look like in the Old Testament? What does it mean for God to dwell among us? But in the New Testament, let's just jump to the beginning of John. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word became flesh 
and made his dwelling among us. What does it look like for God to dwell among his people? What did it look like for Jesus to dwell among us? Um, <clears throat> you know, I think, again, at Christmas time, getting these Christmas cards with Thomas Kincaid pictures on the front, you know, these cozy houses, all light shining through and everything looking really nice. Um, well, yes, it's true. We see in the gospel record that uh, Jesus talked about the renovation of all things and he showed what the reign of God looks like when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, that the sick are healed, um, children are welcomed, dead are raised, the hungry are fed, the sorrowing are comforted, marginalized are restored to community. But the gospel record also showed that there were children being killed by the military. There were parents fleeing as refugees and living as undocumented immigrants in another country. Later in Jesus' ministry, there was homelessness, remember he said. There was family strife. There were misunderstandings. There was controversy. That was all part of, of the story as well. And again, that's one of the things we wrestle with. We go through Advent with our... Mary and I with our family, and we anticipate peaceful gatherings of the family around candlelit tables and and the children, grandchildren, deepening their understanding of God's story. And instead, there's one son who won't come if the other son is there, and there's babies that miss their naps and are crying and 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 is like, oh, this doesn't match my mental image, but... The promise is what? It's God with us in those things, not the absence of all those things. All right, I gotta hurry up. What do we learn about God's heart in the covenant formula? Say it again with me. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will dwell among you. God with us, Emmanuel, living in the presence of God. We learn that the God who's our God has this personal name spelled with uh, four Hebrew letters, Y-H-W-H, that means I am, specifically I am present, always. And we learn that God is present with compassion, with grace, with patience, with love, with faithfulness, forgiveness, and justice. We learn that the people of God exist to bless the families of the earth, Intercede for the nations, that God chose us not by our merits, but because of his everlasting love. And that we can't do that role well until we have been magnificently defeated like Jacob and realized that all our strength and skill won't avail us anything. We can only throw ourselves on God's unfailing love and ask him to bless us and make his face to smile upon us. And that God dwells among us, even in the midst of strife and confusion and mystery. When I think of the beating heart of God, I think as a doctor about how our heart and our body is nestled between our two lungs. And I think how lungs are breath, and breath is another word for spirit. And I think of Genesis 1-2, that image of the Spirit of God hovering over the water, this sort of image of embrace, of comfort and protection that Jesus echoed when he said, Oh, how I long, Jerusalem, to gather your people together as a hen gathers her chicks beneath her wings. Yesterday was January 6th, right? It was the 12th day of Christmas. What's that day called in the church calendar? It's Epiphany, right? Epiphany is an appearing, a revealing, because it was the day, tradition says, that the wise men from the east beheld the Christ child, the first Gentiles to witness God's salvation. And as I think of the, the 12 days of Christmas, I, I learned something this Christmas that I never heard before, maybe you guys knew it, that that song, the 12 days of Christmas, was actually created in England in a time when the Catholic Church was persecuted by the Anglican Church and the priests had to do their catechism in code. So when they said, the first day of Christmas, my true love, God the Father, the one who loves me, that loving heart of God, gave to me a partridge, the bird that was known for protecting its chicks, giving its life in a prairie fire to cover its chicks. The best gift he gave, the father gave the son. 
And then the two turtle doves, the two testaments, the, the three French hens, the triad of faith, hope, and love, the four calling birds, the four gospels, the five golden rings, the five books of the Pentateuch, the six geese, the six days of creation, the seven swans, the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, the eight milkmaids, the eight beatitudes, the nine ladies, the nine fruits of the Spirit, the ten lords, the ten commandments, the eleven pipers, the eleven disciples after Judas, and the twelve drummers, those twelve lines in the Apostles' Creed. Did you all know that? That was new to me. Anyway, I liked learning about that. But going back to that idea of the Spirit hovering. Think of these four key moments in redemption history, the hovering at the moment of creation and new life coming forth when God spoke. At the time of the annunciation of Gabriel's visit to Mary, she said the spirit will overshadow you, you know, will hover over you and this new creation will begin. And then hovering the spirit over Jesus at his baptism as he starts his ministry and the Spirit hovering like tongues of fire over the disciples in the upper room at Pentecost. That God has given us not only his heart, but his lungs, his spirit, his breath, to carry out his mission to bless all those families on the earth. So I like how Jesus tweaks the covenant formula a little bit. Remember, he said, what was the first line again? I will be your God. And Jesus said to his disciples, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Do you hear those overtones to the Lord and the I am? And then he says to them, Not only will you be my people, but he says, You will be my witnesses. Right? And then the I will dwell among you becomes the last line of Matthew's gospel. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So I just want to close this morning with with, uh, one last reading from the gospel. It's called the Song of Zechariah. What burst out of Zechariah's mouth when he could speak again after nine months of silence. And let's read these few verses again together with me. Zechariah is holding this little baby in his arms. I liked what Abe said about, you know, all eyes on the child. And, and, and this is John the Baptist here, but Zechariah says, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Our role in the new year is bearing witness to Jesus, like John the Baptist did. Like John the Baptist, we have to clarify, both to ourselves and to the world, who we are not. We're not Jesus, we're not saviors, we're not infallible, we're not omniscient, we can't promise blessing. We didn't get chosen because we're the best. But we rightly understand who we are in God's kingdom, recognizing that we're meant to point away from ourselves toward Jesus. Hopefully, like John, we can level out difficult places so that people can approach Jesus we can reduce the suffering that they feel, maybe the oppression that they feel, so that they get to behold him like we do. We can just rejoice this Sunday that we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. We are his witnesses. Let's help make Jesus this year more famous than he already is. We're on the Lord's side. We've got an invitation to the banquet. We've been moved from darkness to the kingdom of light. We're going to have to climb some hills and valleys this year, I know. But we can climb them with someone who can keep us from falling. Eyes have not seen nor ears heard what God has prepared for those who love him. So that's the end of what I wanted to bring to you from the Lord here. And I don't see the Sunday school kids out back yet, so maybe I can take another minute just to talk about what it is we're going to do. 
just to understand a little bit better the, the ministry that you're commending us to. First, just a word about medical missions. That's the term I've always used. There's a new term now called global health, Christian global health, and its role in the spread of the gospel. Last January, Mary and I got to visit Israel for the very first time. And I remember being on a spot on the hills above the Sea of Galilee where they think the Sermon on the Mount might have happened. There's a beautiful garden there, and there's the various Beatitudes that the sermon begins with in Matthew 5, um, different ones engraved in different places as you walk through the paths. And I remember Matthew 5 begins with the line, when Jesus saw the crowds. And I was thinking, why were there crowds around Jesus that day? And I just went back and looked at the, the last couple verses of Matthew 4. Leading up, and it says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, suffering severe pain, demon-possessed, having seizures, paralyzed. He healed them all. So large crowds followed him. Jesus put his words and his deeds together, his healing and his teaching were part and parcel of the good news. There were crowds because he healed them. And then in his teaching, he explained that fact, that the compassion they were seeing was that compassionate heart of God. And that's also true of the very first church in, in Bolivia. In our history book of, of missions in Bolivia, I want to just read you this one paragraph that says, In San Pedro, the first gospel meetings were held in 1912. So what, 112 or 13 years ago, in a large shop which opened on the main street. Mr. Reginald Burrow had arrived on the field the year before and was very active in the medical aspect of the work, caring for the sick in and about San Pedro and conducting classes in medicine and first aid for new missionaries. He describes one of the early meetings. It's Sunday, the hour for service has arrived, the seats are arranged, everyone's ready, but where's the congregation? They hesitate to come in because they know they'll incur the wrath of their neighbors. But by little persuasion, there's soon a little congregation inside and a larger one peeping in at the window and door. Those who have entered are all men, and all are those to whom we've rendered some help. This one was healed of pneumonia, that one saved from insanity. This other man healed of a broken nose and injured eye. That one over there is the father of an only child snatched from the very jaws of death. So in Bolivia, it was just like in Jesus' time that tender care for sick people bore witness to God's compassion and grace and the teaching explained that. So today in global health, Christian global health, the, the, the models are different. We don't build big mission hospitals anymore. In fact, Mary and I have good friends who work with us, family practice doctor like me in Bolivia. Now they're in a country that I'm not even permitted to name, in the Horn of Africa. Um, but they're there at the invitation of the government, an Islamic government, to teach in the medical school. And they're fully provided for, licensed, revalidated, given a bodyguard and everything else. So there's different ways of doing it, but it's the same way of communicating the heart of God. And so our mission is to have a part in recruiting people to do things like that, placing them in strategic areas, training them, and then accompanying them through Zoom calls, through emails, through visits, to flourish as healthcare workers, God's co-workers in hard places, bringing that good news of shalom through Jesus Christ in communities where he's least known. That's what we hope to do. Thank you for your part in it. And let's commit ourselves to the Lord. Father, help each one of us to be like John the Baptist, bringing the knowledge of salvation to people who haven't heard it yet in this year 2024. Bringing the knowledge of forgiveness of their sins, of the tender mercy that they can find in you, the light that will shine upon them in your presence. Guide our feet into that path of peace. Thank you, Lord, for our salvation, and may your family be even larger at the end of this year than when it starts through the ministry of Northern Hills. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.